This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It was a seminal moment, March 3rd, 1991. The horrific beating of Rodney King was captured on a handheld Sony camera operated by a 31-year-old plumber. The visual savagery immediately went viral and served as the chief evidence in the prosecution of four LAPD officers. Ever since then, video has played a vital role in criminal cases everywhere. The advent of cell phone cameras, police body cams, and community closed-circuit television, CCTV cameras, has only increased the prevalence of criminal activity caught on tape, or these days, digital. Civil libertarians may decry the intrusions, but anti-crime advocates exalt their value. Regardless, the presence of cameras everywhere in our urban landscape has dramatically altered what happens inside courtrooms across America. Eyewitnesses sometimes lie, misperceive, or forget, but images do not. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Billionaire investor Michael Pinto has a warning for you. Don't listen to anyone who tells you how bad the crash will be and when it exactly will happen. Nobody knows. But the CEO of Wells Fargo warns the worst is yet to come for Americans. Pay attention to the economic data. Inflation is at a 40-year high. And make no mistake about it, the recession is real, no matter how the White House tries to change the definition. That's why Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, and Jim Cramer are all calling for gold to surge. Gold and silver have historically moved opposite the stock market and in the long term can preserve your purchasing power. Call 800-809-8500 and Lear Capital, the number one rated gold company, will present the same trusted options they have been giving successful investors since 1997. At Lear Capital, most IRA rollovers qualify for no IRA fees for up to five years. Their current incentive offers up to $15,000 in bonus silver for well-qualified new customers. A three-minute call can protect your portfolio with the power of real physical gold. Call 800-809-8500 today. Again, that's 800-809-8500 and tell them Greg Jarrett sent you. Five criminal cases have recently gained national attention. There is a common denominator in every single one of them. Technology that incriminates the accused. Several cameras witnessed five cops beating to death motorist Tyree Nichols on a Memphis street. Video caught an intruder in the act of striking the head of Paul Pelosi with a hammer inside his San Francisco home. A cell phone recording places disgraced lawyer Alex Murdaugh at the scene of the gruesome double murders of his wife and son in South Carolina. Videos implicate four young men in the rape of college student Madison Brooks, who was then left on a Louisiana highway and run over. Finally, the cell phone of defendant Brian Koberger and surveillance cameras are key pieces of evidence in the murders of four Idaho students who were viciously stabbed to death in their home. These criminal prosecutions will invariably turn on the importance of visual images, voice recordings, cell phone pings, and surveillance cameras that inculpate, in various ways, all of the defendants. 
Without such digital documentation, convictions would be far less likely and our communities less safe. Let's talk about the Tyree Nichols case. There is no mistaking what we have all seen with our own eyes, the unjustified barbaric beating of a defenseless young man whose only offense was to supposedly drive his car in a reckless manner. When stopped by an elite group of cops ominously called the Scorpion Unit, Tyree Nichols was violently yanked from his car and thrown to the ground as if he was a serial killer. Five officers were then seen on police body cams and a static pole camera delivering a sadistic beating of Nichols that caused such extensive internal bleeding, he later died. They took turns hammering him with batons while screaming profanities, standing him up and punching him in the face repeatedly, and booting him in the head with the force of a 50-yard field goal kicker. As Nichols lay dying, the same thuggish officers exchanged fist bumps. They bragged about their handiwork, and they generally yucked it up. More than 15 minutes elapsed as Nichols' life ticks away while slumped against a car. None of the cops gave a damn. They are a collective disgrace to the badge they wore that night. Summarily fired from their jobs, they now face second-degree murder charges that are richly deserved. If convicted, they could spend between 50 and 60 years in prison. I'd give them the max. In Tennessee, the intent to commit serious bodily injury resulting in death constitutes murder in the second degree. The cameras showed depraved indifference to human life. Cops crushed Nichols like an insignificant bug as he called out in vain for his mother, who lived nearby. He was mercilessly tortured with fists and kicks. The cops broke every rule in the book. They violated every single duty they were sworn to uphold. They failed to de-escalate the initial confrontation. Instead, they elevated it. Acting like Keystone cops, they clumsily failed to properly control and subdue the suspect. They failed to utilize the minimum amount of force necessary under the circumstances. Other officers failed to intervene to stop the excessive force. And finally, they failed to render aid to a severely injured and dying young man. Some have suggested these officers were insufficiently trained. Hogwash. They were well-trained, but they chose to ignore all training. They abandoned human decency. Their mob mentality was fueled by rage. You could almost hear them say to Nichols, how dare you resist or run away? Now you're going to pay for it with your life. That is the truth of what happened that terrible night in Memphis. The ugliness of their anger it's plainly depicted on the video. And without those cameras, the cops would have likely invented some phony alibi to justify their sickening behavior. Now to the Paul Pelosi case. Talk about being caught red-handed. The door to the San Francisco home of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her husband swings open and there stands 82-year-old Paul Pelosi trying to wrestle control of a large hammer from a much younger intruder, David DePoppy. Seconds later, the assailant swings the hammer at his victim's head. He falls to the ground in a pool of blood as cops tackle the attempted murderer. All of this was captured on an officer's body cam. The unprovoked bludgeoning proves without a doubt the defendant's guilt on charges of attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. The incontrovertible evidence notwithstanding, DePapa might not be found guilty. How so? 
With no way out, he will surely change his plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity. Under California law, a person is considered legally insane if he suffers from a mental disease or defect so severe that either he cannot understand the nature of his criminal act or he cannot distinguish right from wrong. It's called the McNaughton Rule. The burden of proof is not on the prosecution to prove sanity, but on the defense to prove insanity by a preponderance of the evidence. That is, it was more probable than not that DePapi was insane at the moment he committed the crime. If this defense prevails, he will be sent to a mental institution instead of a prison. Now, you can expect the defense team to hire one or more psychiatric experts who may tell the jury that the defendant was schizophrenic or suffered from paranoid delusions or some such thing. That's standard fare in a case like this, but it's a long shot. Only about 1% of criminal defendants invoke the insanity defense, and of those, very few succeed. But liberal San Francisco juries tend to be amenable to insanity or diminished capacity defenses, a variation on insanity. In fact, the ludicrous hostess Twinkie defense prevailed in the twin murders of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk more than four decades ago. So who knows what cockamamie excuse the defendant's lawyers will invent when their client goes to trial, but their options are limited thanks to the indelible video of the crime. Now to the Alex Murdoch case, the once powerful South Carolina lawyer. Murdoch is on trial for gunning down his wife and son, Maggie and Paul, in a double slain that has captivated a nation fixated on true crime dramas. Perhaps the most damning evidence against the defendant is a video recording from Paul's cell phone. It places the defendant, the father, at the murder scene, the family kennels, on their estate at precisely 8.44 p.m. Alex's voice can be heard in the background nearby. Roughly five minutes later, the phone is locked for the final time. No more activity. Shortly thereafter, both mother and son are slaughtered in a hail of gunshots. The cell phone video and audio is highly incriminating because the accused led investigators to believe that he was nowhere near the kennels before the murders. And yet, there he was at the location of the crimes just before they happened. Without the cell phone, prosecutors would never be able to prove that the defendant was at the crime scene in a time frame consistent with the killings. There is other compelling evidence, to be sure. Blood was collected from inside the driver and passenger sides of Murdoch's Chevy Suburban. We don't know whose blood it is, yet we will. If it matches the victims, it would support the prosecution's theory that the defendant murdered his wife and son, drove back to the main house to clean up, but inadvertently transferred trace amounts of their blood to the inside of the vehicle. It's also suspicious that Murdaugh was uncontaminated from head to toe when he was interviewed by police shortly after the bodies were discovered. No apparent blood on his hands, his arms, shirt, shorts, and shoes. Yet, the defendant told police that he touched both blood-soaked victims while checking their pulse. That seems impossible, doesn't it? That there was not a speck of blood on him unless he had carefully sanitized his body and changed clothes before police arrived. The lack of footprints or knee prints around his son's body is equally curious. Indeed, it's 
inconceivable if the father knelt down next to Paul's body in a pool of blood and tried to turn him over, as he informed police. And what happened to Murdoch's missing gun? Does the ammunition confiscated from inside his house by investigators match the ammo used in the murders? All of this will likely unfold as the trial progresses. But the cell phone audio may prove to be the pivotal piece of incriminating evidence. Now to the Madison Brooks case. Both surveillance and personal cell phone videos are an integral part of the prosecution's evidence in the rape and subsequent death of 19-year-old LSU student Madison Brooks. Security cameras and eyewitness statements show she was stumbling and unsteady while drinking for hours in a bar. At one point, she had to be helped to her feet after climbing down from a stool. Four young men gave her a ride home in the back of their car, where she was allegedly raped by two of them. Now, under Louisiana law, it is considered a crime to have sex with someone who is mentally incapacitated due to excess alcohol consumption and therefore unable to consent. Brooks's blood alcohol level was determined to be 0.319%. What's that? It's nearly four times the legal limit for driving. Experts will say it's close to unconsciousness. A post-mortem showed injuries consistent with a forcible sexual assault attack. The driver of the car admitted to police that she appeared drunk, slurred her words, and was unable to keep her balance. When asked by investigators if Madison was too impaired to consent, he reportedly replied, I guess. One of the men in the car took a partial video from inside the vehicle. A lawyer representing two of the defendants claims, well, that video proves Brooks was intoxicated, but coherent enough and capable of consenting. Well, given her blood alcohol level, I seriously doubt that. In fact, the judge who handled the bond hearings reviewed the same video and concluded that the evidence was clear that crimes were committed. Madison was dropped off in a dark area of a highway where she was struck by a passing vehicle and died later in a hospital. The driver of that car was not charged. But once again, the various videos will play a crucial role in determining guilt at the time of trial. Finally, the Brian Koberger case. The brutal murders of four University of Idaho students will invariably turn on DNA evidence, a tan leather knife sheath left behind, and cell phone records of the accused, Brian Koberger. Also, several video cameras place a vehicle identical to the defendant's car near the crime scene multiple times on the day of the attack, and, this is important, fleeing the area at a high rate of speed shortly after the killings. The cell phone data places Koberger near the victim's residence at least 12 times leading up to the murders, as if he was casing their house, stalking his planned targets. During the crucial time period when the occupants were stabbed to death, the defendant's phone was turned off. Prosecutors reason he was trying to avoid detection by concealing his precise location. Just a few hours later, his cell phone was suddenly reactivated, and he returned to the scene of the crimes. Koberger's DNA on the knife sheath and other blood evidence from the victims connects him to the crime, say prosecutors. 
The value of science cannot be underestimated, but his own electronic device serves as corroborating evidence that will likely lead to his conviction. It offers a powerful cellular timeline of incriminating conduct. Let's talk about all of this now with Brian Claypool, a veteran trial attorney in Southern California, one of the best. And Brian, thanks for being back on The Brief. You know, people sometimes decry the pervasive presence of video cameras. They say it's a a privacy intrusion, not really because generally speaking, there's no expectation of privacy in public places where these cameras are located where people are shooting their, you know, cell phone videos. Nevertheless, I, I, I sort of shudder to think how many crimes go unsolved when there is no modern technology to rely on. I, I should also point out that cameras and cell phones tend to exonerate people as well. For example, good cops who follow the law Uh, can always point to their own body cams when they're falsely uh, accused of abuse. Um, So where do you stand on the prevalence uh, and the use in courts of law of this video technology? Hey, Greg, great to be back with you. I I think video audio cameras are imperative uh, to seeking fair justice in society. I can think of one word when I think of all the cases you've mentioned, when you, when you, when you talk about exonerating somebody versus somebody might be guilty, the word is transparency. And I've worked on, for example, many civil rights cases years back involving police shootings and uh, body cam footage, audio can make or break a case if you have it. And, and think back, think too, Greg, for, for the reason why years ago that, for example, a lot of law enforcement was required to wear on their lapel a, a camera that would film and, and audio tape conversations. The reason why was to engender transparency within the community and to your point, to, to help figure out whether, for example, a police officer did something right or wrong and w- whether there's criminal culpability or civil liability. Right. You know, it, it, it's so funny because there's a, a widespread misconception that eyewitnesses are the gold standard in uh, civil and criminal cases. Um, that's not true. Uh, science is more reliable. Cameras are more reliable. The problem with eyewitnesses is that, you know, they they sometimes... Uh, dissemble or deceive. They sometimes lie. They they will misperceive an event that they have witnessed, or you know, as time passes, they kind of forget things, details in particular. Uh, you know, there lawyers are fond of saying that if you have twenty eyewitnesses to uh, an automobile accident, you'll have twenty different versions of what happened because people perceive mm-hmm. things differently. So. Eyewitnesses are not all that reliable. Cameras, on the other hand, really don't lie, do they? Greg, what an excellent point. Can I give you a quick example of just what you're talking about? This was about 10 years ago when I was handling some police shooting cases, a case up in Fresno, California. For your listeners, that's up towards central California to the east a bit. And I had a case where a young man uh, stole a truck and he was on a police pursuit uh, Fresno County sheriffs were following him for about a half hour. They cornered him in a driveway in a residential area. He backed up the uh, the white pickup truck, and and then he was shot uh, four times in the head, and he ended up he ended up being brain damaged for the rest of his life. And the issue in that case, Greg, was was he accelerating the truck at the moment the officers fired into the window? Was the the, the white pickup truck really moving toward the officers. That's, that was really the sole issue. And I got to tell you, we took depositions of five different neighbors. And to your point, we got four or five different versions of, of everything that transpired. One said he was revving it up. Another said, no, it didn't sound like he was revving it up. It sounded like maybe 
it was just a malfunction in the engine. Then one said he was going five to 10 miles an hour. Another said it was barely rolling. So to your point, if we, we didn't have video in that case, Greg, it was really, really difficult to prosecute that case. We had no, no video, too much time had gone by for the neighbor's surveillance video. And, and I got to tell you, it, it was devastating to that case to not have it. Yeah. You know, people are human. I mean, they make mistakes. They're, they're fallible. Um, and, but technology although it is a human invention, it is not, uh, generally speaking, uh, unless it, it, it stops working for some reason. But, you know, when you, especially cameras, when you can see sometimes vividly uh, what's going on, it, it, you know, speaks volumes, uh, not just of the actions committed, but the intent and, and so let's apply that to the Tyree Nichols case. You know, as I said, there's no mistaking what we see with our own eyes, especially this static pole camera, which really captures everything because the body cams only capture a part of it. Obviously, they're moving uh, in concert with the individual uh, on whom it's strapped. Um, and so some of it is, you know, kind of blacked out. It's jerky. You don't see everything. But the static pole camera which was a community security camera, really tells much of the story that this was a savage and vicious beating by a group of cops. Um, and it was entirely unmerited. Uh, I mean, this is a defenseless young man. For God's sakes, he was pulled over for allegedly driving uh, in a reckless manner um, that may or may not be uh, debatable, but the proportion of force that was used far exceeds what was merited or required under the circumstances. So this is, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question in my mind, at least, that this is a case of excessive use of force. What do you think? Oh, Greg, this is this is as bad as it gets. Just so your, your listeners know, because I, like I said, I've handled probably... 10 or 12 of these cases, the first thing you start with is probable cause to even pull somebody over, to detain somebody, to question them. You make a good point. Where is, I want to see dash cam footage of the police off from the police officer's vehicle that decides to even pull Tyrese over. You've got to have probable cause, pull somebody over. You can't just make up some fiction, pull somebody over and then create a confrontation. So that's a starting point. Arguably, I know in the civil case, Ben Crump and his lawyers are going to argue, you didn't even have probable cause to pull them over. Let's give the cops benefit of the doubt. They have probable cause. They pull them over. There, there's what's called a continuum of force in, in, in the law enforcement business, Greg. And it starts with your hands. Police officer using their hands. It goes from least to the highest degree of force. Hands. Then you've got what's called an ASP, ASP baton. You've got mace. Then you've got your, your, your service weapon, they call it. And I will tell you, you hit the nail on the head. There is nothing in any of those videos, Greg, that would require police officers to use anything other than their hands. Why? Because Tyrese never posed a threat of harm to any of the officers, number one. Number two, he was running away. There was no evidence of him being armed. So this Tennessee versus Garner case that I'm sure you're familiar with doesn't apply. It's called the fleeing felon case. These cops can try to argue, oh, he might have ran and hurt somebody else. That's fiction, too. He didn't have a weapon. He was running away because he was scared. Those two points are really important because you see video then of using fit punching in the face, batons, kicking and mace. There's four levels of aggravated force uh, right there. And I'll go one step further with you. First time I've said this, I've analyzed this. I've listened to the audio. I think this should be a first degree murder case because I, you, you, you know, very well, you can prove meditation, premeditation, I'm sorry, within seconds or a minute. Right. It doesn't need to be plotted out for, you know, a day or two days. I would argue that once he starts running away, these cops were in kill mode and then they're high fire or fist thumping each other. And the thing where I think you can get first degree now, Greg, is when he was laying there and sitting on that ground, they watched him fall over the side. He was going in and out of consciousness and did nothing. I mean, I'd argue that's, 
that's that's only premeditation, but intent to kill. Yeah, let him die. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so many people have said, oh, you know, it's it's we need to retrain cops. Cops are poorly trained. These cops were insufficiently trained. You know, as I said in my opening remarks, that's a load of BS. Uh, they were well trained. They were trained sufficiently. They abandoned uh, their training uh, because they were so angry. They were fueled by rage. You know, how dare you resist? How dare you run away? You're going to pay for it. Uh, you know, that's what I see. The, the anger that you hear on the body cams, the profanities, uh, you know, one officer, you know, encouraging another, encouraging another, hit him, hit him. Uh, you know, it, it's, it really tells the story, the truth of what happened that night. Um, it, it's plainly depicted on the video that these guys were a bunch of angry cops and they were taking out their anger on a defenseless, unarmed individual. And, you know, they beat him to death. And I, I you know, I'm glad to hear you say, first degree murderer. I've heard one legal commentator, he's a lawyer, say, oh, second degree is is too much. It ought to be a manslaughter charge, heat of passion. Well, that may end up being a lesser included in the end, but I can see a first degree murder charge here based exactly on the premise that you've outlined here, that under the law, and every lawyer knows this, you can premeditate in a matter of minutes, yep. you can premeditate it in a matter of seconds. And here, from beginning uh, to end, a minimum of 15 minutes unfolds as they're pummeling this poor innocent victim. Yeah, Greg, two thoughts. First of all, I want to applaud you for, uh, for, for being brave enough to say what I want to say, which is I agree with you 100%. This is not a training issue. I saw so many... So many analysts on after after this terrible, tragic murder. And the first thing out of their mouth, Greg, is the training, the training, the training. And I'm, I'm tired of hearing that because this I agree with you. Not not a training issue. It's one of two things. You make a fantastic point, which is the minute these cops interacted with Tyrese, they were already angry. They were already in a rage. That could have been you or me, dude. And they would have pulled us out of there and we were their victim. That. That, that pre-existing rage and mafia mentality is the result of, of one of two things or a combination of two things. One, a culture created within that Memphis Police Department that's kind of like a mob culture. Uh, the second one I'm going to get to in a second is, 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 is potential mental health issues with police officers where they're not properly vetted before they're hired. They're not given mental health exams. They're, they're not... They don't have therapists digging in deep into their lives to find out whether they're fit to, to carry a gun and service our community. And Greg, it goes beyond that. We police departments across the country need to be having regular mental health checks with these all, all these officers every six months, minimally, or a year maybe, and dig deep, find out what's going on in that world because they can't be carrying guns if they got if they've got um, mental health issues. Um, so I, I, I think it's a combination of the two. Greg, do you remember what years ago in L.A. County? Do you remember this? I know you're familiar with L.A. There was an alleged gang within L.A. County sheriffs called the Banditos. Oh, yeah. So I'm not making this up. This is this is potentially going on. Sure. Sure. I mean, there were groups within. Oh, God. What division was it? Rampart, uh, where there were rogue cops. And they were, uh, you know, planting evidence, making uh, completely false accusations, lying about it and so forth. And their rationale was, you know, these uh, minority gangs are bad people. So um, we're just going to make up stuff and put them behind bars, even though they didn't do it. I mean, it was horrible stuff. You know, um, I want to move on if I can, because as I mentioned in my opening remarks, there's a common denominator here in all of the five cases that have made headlines recently. Um, and, and the second case let's talk about is is the Paul Pelosi uh, case, the video 
uh, caught an intruder, uh, absolutely red-handed in the act of striking the head of Paul Pelosi with a hammer. That is a dangerous weapon. Uh, he could have killed him. So he's been properly charged with attempted murder as well as, uh, you know, use of a deadly assault with a deadly weapon. Um, but again, the video camera there uh, totally convicts David DePapi, who is the defendant in that case. So the only thing I can see is that they're going to try an insanity defense. What do you think? Yeah, Greg, you're right on. Um, I, I, and, I, and, I, and, and to your point, did you hear that DePape, I guess, called um, a media outlet or called somebody after the videotape was uh, disseminated yeah. to, to make some, some outrageous comments? I think that was clearly a ploy on his part to build up some, you know, to, some type of, of insanity. Assuming defense. it's authentic. And I, I'm not oh, sure. I, it's, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. not sure it's authentic. If it is, then, then yeah. And prosecutors would use that to show his sanity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's two things that, you know, and by the way, I think this guy should be put behind bars for life. That said though, you know, putting on the defense hat, there's insanity defenses, just so your listeners know, they're extremely, extremely hard to prove. And some states don't even allow it anymore, Greg. Why? Because it, 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 it's a full, complete defense to the criminal charge. In other words, that person gets off the hook completely. So jurors are much less likely to, to agree on insanity. I think the, mo the more probable defense that his lawyers are going to make is what's called diminished capacity defense. That right. doesn't eliminate the crime completely. It, it basically, the argument in a nutshell is this guy has some kind of mental health issue, whether he's a psychopath or some other kind of mental health deficiency that defeats the intent element. And that lowers the crime. Then uh, like, like you see it a lot in murder cases from like first degree to second degree because right. it eliminates intent. So it eliminates the intent element and then lowers the crime, uh, which jurors, if they do believe the person has a mental defect, they can, they can more plausibly wrap their arms around that. Yeah. That, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that was the diminished capacity defense um, that was used um, in the, by Dan White, a board of supervisor who gunned down Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Mel. Um, when I was in law school more than 40 years ago, and in fact, I, I was two blocks away when it happened, and it became known as the Hostess Twinkie defense, which oh, was wow. <laughs> utterly absurd, yeah, you know, sure. that he was juiced up on um, junk food, eating too many Hostess Twinkies, and he became irrational. His mental capacity was diminished. And the jury bought it and they, you know, they reduced uh, murder down to manslaughter. Um, he, you know, he spent, uh, I don't know how many years behind bars, eventually got out Dan White and then killed himself. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this is a, you know, this is liberal San Francisco. So jurors, if they bought the hostess Twinkie defense, might buy some diminished capacity in the Paul Pelosi case. Yeah, I, that, 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 that's an excellent point. But you know what's interesting about your entire topic here is that I think there's less chance of DePay prevailing on diminished cap capacity because of your, your opening statement, because of the video, right? If there right. was no video, uh, Greg, of this confrontation, then, then DePay, because he, is, he does sound pretty deranged, he might have a shot. At diminished capacity, but I think that video now of the confrontation is just devastating for him on either insanity or uh, diminished capacity, and 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 I think he's going to get hammered, and he should go to jail for life. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens um, again at San Francisco. So, yeah. you know, who knows what may occur. Uh, and I practiced law there uh, for several years in San Francisco, so I'm quite familiar with um, the uh, iconoclast uh, San Francisco juries. Uh, let me move to the Alex Murdoch case. This is a case that has so fascinated uh, people across the nation 
who are fixated on true crime dramas. You know, there's a whole cottage industry that just is devoted to the Murdoch case. Um, I mean, this is, you know, once powerful lawyer, you know, so wealthy. It turns out, you know, he was running a, 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 a drug money laundering operation um, to supply him with his own habit. He was stealing from $9 million from his clients, from his law partners, from his law firm and so forth. Um, and he is on trial. This is the, today's the beginning of the, the second week of trial for gunning down his wife and son, uh, Maggie and Paul. And it, it was a complete slaughter, two different weapons used. Uh, I mean, it was just an ugly, ugly murder scene. But once again, the common thread here is video. The key piece of evidence in my mind is a video recording from Paul's cell phone that puts the defendant, the father, at the murder scene literally minutes before the killings. Alex's voice can be heard in the background on the son's uh, cell phone. And five minutes later, the phone is locked, no more activity. Uh, Almost immediately thereafter, both mother and son are slaughtered in a hail of gunshots. Um, There's other evidence to be sure, but to me, that cell phone audio, what do you think? To me, that's the most incriminating. Yeah, Greg, it it was a pleasure to be on with you. Um, we did a show together Saturday night on this, uh, or a few nights ago, on right. this topic, and you you commented on this on on the show, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I believe that that video and hearing and hearing the audio then uh, of of Murdoch in the background is the single piece of evidence, the most colossal and massive piece of evidence. That will convict Murdoch. Why? Because you have you've done criminal cases before. You need sure. the prosecutors need to prove what's called means and opportunity. Right? Got to go through motive. You don't abso- actually need motive, but in this case, I think you do need motive because you've got a, a a husband and a father killing a wife and a son. So you need motive, and I think they're working on that. And I think they got some good arguments. But means and opportunity was huge because he's saying, "Hey, I wasn't there." I. I he testified to or he, they played the video today or, or the, the the video and audio of his interview. And he said, hey, I knocked off on the couch. I was playing with my phone, watching TV around six. I woke up, you know, around nine, ten, called my wife, Maggie. And, you know, then I ran off to my mom's house. Right. Well, that what you just said, Greg, did that 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 video just completely belies that it puts him at the scene of the crime within minutes of the shooting. But not only that. But you know as well as I do, one of the most important jury instructions given in closing argument is credibility of a witness, right? Good trial lawyers always read that instruction. Is this person believable? And now this jury hears or sees that lie firsthand, and they aren't going to believe a single thing that he says or his defense team says. Yeah. Absolutely. His credibility goes out the window. Um, And the other part of the uh, evidence that is really pretty damning is that from head to toe, there's no blood on him. But he claims, you know, that he touched the bodies. He checked their pulse with respect to his son, that he he tried to turn the body over. The son is soaked in blood. There's there's pools of blood everywhere. You, You cannot do what he claims to have done. And walk away from that without a speck of blood on your body. I, I mean, so it looks like he goes back to the house and, you know, changes clothes and, you know, takes a shower and thoroughly cleans himself, gets dressed with clean clothes, and then calls the cops. And, you know, so that 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 just doesn't compute to me. And the lack of footprints or knee prints around his son's body where he's you know, allegedly trying to move the body. I mean, that's uh, that that's inconceivable to me, but that's his story. Now, he does have a very fine defense attorney in Dick Harputlian, uh, who's got a great track record, and he's very good with juries. But some cases are impossible to defend, and this strikes me as one of them. I don't know about you. 
Yeah, that's why I always love your commentary, because I feel like you really dissect, hit hit the nail on the head. I agree with you. I think what happened here is, it, I, I, I think he, he carried out the shootings. Apparently, there's a raincoat that was found at his mom's house. I think right after doing it, he has enough time then to drive to his mom's house. Creating he, an alibi. Exactly. He does two things, Greg. He creates the alibi, and I think he undressed there. I think he had some clothes with him. He then undresses. Who knows where he threw all the bloody clothes, puts back on clean clothes, but the raincoat was left over there. Why is he wearing a raincoat? Got an argue. I got a theory on that. I mean, if blood, blood spatters on a raincoat, it more easily rolls off the raincoat, right? Like water right. when sure. it rains. But anyway, but that, but he's got it. He can then create the alibi. He changes over there, tosses his clothes somewhere. And then on, on his way back, he tosses, you know, Maggie's cell phone on the side of the street where it ended up. Right. Uh, and then he, and then you're right. He shows up clean. Um, but that, that's just such an excellent point. Um, the Madison Brooks case, the LSU student, 19 years old, um, it is a rape case. Uh, she, you know, is underage. She's drinking at a bar. And the bar is now out of business. I mean, they're going to get hit with a massive a wrongful death lawsuit for serving underage. Um, and, and not just one drink, but, you know, a whole bevy of drinks. She's there for hours drinking and drinking. Um, and you know, the, uh, once again, surveillance cameras, personal cell phone v- videos are a key part of the prosecution's, uh, rape case evidence in, in this case. Um, you know, she, she's clearly unsteady. She's kind of fallen off a stool, has to be helped up, falls off a bench. Um, she has no balance. Amazingly, once she gets into the car, to get a ride home, she's in a car with four young men, all of whom have now been charged. Two of them allegedly raped her. And the defense attorney has the audacity to say, oh, I, you know, I think that uh, cell phone camera uh, inside uh, the, the vehicle is going to prove that she consented. <laughs> that is a load of crap. I mean, there, there's no way. First of all, her blood alcohol level is four times the legal limit. It's 0.319. I mean, that's the point of unconsciousness, alcohol poisoning. And a postmortem shows that her injuries are consistent with forcible sexual assault. So once again, I think the pivotal evidence is going to be not just the surveillance video of her stumbling around but inside the vehicle as well, um, that this is an individual who under the law doesn't have the mental capacity to consent. What do you think? Yeah, two things. I, I'm a single father of a teenage girl, Greg. I've got you know, nearly full custody of her. And when I, when I read this story and, and saw the, the, the video and everything, I, I, I have to admit I was in tears because I thought this could happen easily to my daughter, your daughter, anybody's daughter, Right. But I have to tell you, when I saw there was a little piece of video, I don't know if you saw it, where it showed Madison kind of stumbling from behind, walking toward their car. So I, when I first saw that, I'm like, oh, thank God, somebody, I don't even know how they got that, but at least they show that, you know, she's with, she's going into their car, right? Without that, without any video from inside the car. To your point, how do we even prove, these guys could have, Greg, these guys could have carried this out without any of this video. And dumped her off on the side of the street. And we wouldn't even be talking about them being indicted. That's my first thought. And then the second thought is, you know, I dug deep into the Louisiana law. Third degree rape in Louisiana. You cannot use consent as a defense if the young woman was intoxicated. And that I, so the, so that, that defense will be taught, will be tossed out of court. They're not even going to be able to argue consent in this case, because of your point, she was four times beyond the legal limit. Yeah. You can't consent when you're that inebriated. Yeah. What's so tragic is they they leave her on a busy highway. Oh, There's an argument awful. about where to take her allegedly. Oh. And and they leave her on a busy highway in a dark area. And of course, you know, a car comes along and, and hits her and kills her. Oh. Yeah. It's uh, awful. You know, it's just so tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let, let's uh, end with a Brian Koberger case. You know, this horrific murders of four uh, University of Idaho students. 
Um, yes, a lot will turn on blood evidence, DNA evidence. He left the, the knife sheath behind. Uh, that's pretty damning. But, you know, to me, the cell phone records, again, very much like the Alec Murdoch, places Koberger at the scene or near the scene of the crime at roughly uh, the period of the crime, both before and after, 12 times he leading up to the murders. It appears he's casing the house, stalking uh, his planned targets. Uh, so once again, you know, technology uh, comes to the rescue of the truth. What do you think? Yeah, it, 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 it's chilling if you think about it, Greg, because not only, not only did the cell, phone, the, the cell phone show him casing, but remember that, that, that incredible video of his car, of that white car speeding away right around the time. It's just what we talked about. And you made a point about Murdoch, right? You, you've got to prove in these murder cases means and opportunity. And that, that means you've got to show, right? First thing you got to show is the defendant was at the scene of the alleged crime. And how would we have proved that Murdoch, but for what you said, you know, Paul, his son with the video, how do we prove Koberger's actually there? We got a picture of his car leaving, screaming away right around the time of the murders. I mean, it is just staggering how important video footage, whether it's coming from somebody on the street doing cell phone video, like in George Floyd's case, or it's like you said, a, a security video of a community up on a, a, a pole, or whether it's a, a neighbor across the street catching the footage of Koberger driving away. We live in different times, and and the times we live now are helping us solve crimes. You know that's that's a good way to to end it because um, yes, uh, I recognize the, the fear of many of uh, Orwellian society of you know government uh, controlling our actions and monitoring our movements and so forth. But when it comes to criminal cases like the five that you and I have been talking about, um, video is vitally important. And in, you know, when you're seeking justice, um, I'll much prefer technology, uh, whether it be science or video evidence or computer evidence over eyewitness testimony any day of the week. Brian Claypool, veteran trial attorney in Southern California, um, one of my favorite guests on The Brief. Thank you for joining us once again. You bet. Thank you, Greg. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.